Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. The fifth stop on the Ashcroft in America tour is Phoenix, Arizona. Apart from 1996, when it backed Bill Clinton, Arizona has voted for the Republican candidate in every presidential election for the last 64 years. Mitt Romney won comfortably here in 2012. Yet this time, the state is too close to call. And as we speak, some analysts give Hillary Clinton the edge. In a show of growing confidence, her campaign sent Michelle Obama to Phoenix this week. Meanwhile, John McCain, the state's six-term Republican senator, faces what he has described as the most difficult election of his career. We're here in this border state to look further into this dramatic change and what it means both for this election and the future of American politics. In our focus groups, we will speak to some of the Hispanic voters who now make up more than one-fifth of Arizona's electorate. We will also hear whether local Trump supporters are sticking with him after another week of allegations about his conduct towards women and what they all made of this week's final TV debate between the two candidates. Arizona is not just a state Donald Trump must win to be elected. It represents the coalition of voters that Republicans need to be competitive in the future. This week, we'll find out how things are looking. Hello, I'm Kevin Colwick, the director of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and I'm here in fabulous Phoenix with Elise Jordan, MSNBC political analyst and columnist for Time magazine. How are you doing, Elise? I'm happy to be in desert weather for once, Kevin. This week on the Ashcroft in America podcast, Rebecca Sanders of the Arizona Republic tells us why the race in this traditionally red state looks so close this year. Elise talks to Petra Falcon, an activist aiming to register tens of thousands of new Latino voters for the November election. The BBC's John Sopel tells Lord Ashcroft what it's like to cover the campaign as a foreign correspondent and why Brits often misunderstand American politics. And as always, real voters from different backgrounds and persuasions will tell us how they see the election and what they make of the news from the campaign trail, which includes the following. Ecuadorian authorities said they didn't want to enable election meddling and cut off WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's internet access after WikiLeaks published hacked emails of high-ranking Democratic officials. As Trump's poll numbers fell, reports surfaced that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had begun talks about creating a Trump television network after the election. Two Democratic operatives were fired from their work with the Democratic National Committee after a secret videotape captured them scheming to incite violence at Donald Trump's rallies. Donald Trump told his supporters, forget the press, read the internet. President Obama accused Donald Trump of whining over his claims that the election could be rigged. Melania Trump defended her husband's lewd language in the controversial 2005 video, saying he was egged on by former Today Show host Billy Bush. And Clinton and Trump met for their third and final debate in Las Vegas. Clinton called Trump a puppet of Vladimir Putin. No puppet, you're the puppet, Trump replied. Trump promised to keep the world in suspense as to whether he would accept the election's results. I will look at it at the time, Trump said. The following day, he clarified that he would accept the results of the election if he won. Rebecca Sanders is a political reporter for the Arizona Republic newspaper. With the race in this traditionally red state too close to call, I asked her what on earth was going on here. Well, I think what you're seeing right now is 
the implosion of the Trump campaign across the country. And Arizona has been trending more what you would call purple, you know, more of a toss up state for some time now. Um, but still, you know, all of our statewide offices are held by Republicans. Our legislature, both chambers are held by Republicans. Um, so Democrats keep saying uh, that they're going to make gains and they're going to turn Arizona blue. Um, and I've been skeptical that they were going to accomplish that this year. But uh, of any year, it looks like this may be their best opportunity. Um, they've got not only an unpopular Trump uh, on the ballot, at least unpopular in a general election, but also you've got um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who has been very polarizing and may help to drive more Hispanics to the polls. Uh, you've got a marijuana ballot measure, a minimum wage ballot measure, uh, and you've got significant spending, it looks like, coming down the pike now from the Clinton campaign. So all of those combining, uh, along with grassroots, you know, door-knocking operations, may make a difference. Um, but I'm still holding out skepticism uh, just because we are such a conservative state um, historically. You mentioned that Arizona is becoming more of a purple state. Is that because of a shift in the way people are voting? Are they actually switching parties? Or is it that the electorate itself is changing? I think it's a number of factors. One is that our registered independents um, continue to grow. People are defecting from both parties. I think also what you're seeing is the demographic change of Arizona. Uh, you point to the Hispanic demographic in particular growing so large um, here as we're a border community um, and Latinos in general uh, tend to vote Democratic and also um, are a much younger demographic in Arizona. And so uh, minorities and young people traditionally turn out to vote in fewer numbers than do older white voters. But as the years go by and those Hispanic young people um, get more involved in the community and more likely to vote, they will have a, uh, more power at the ballot box. What are the issues that have traditionally been the most important to Arizona voters and what explains the state's solid support for Republicans over the years? Well, our history, of course, is kind of a wild west, more, I would say, more libertarian leaning. It's uh, it's very much about uh, independence and, uh, you know, be, being left alone by the government. Uh, we're so close to the border that we deal with illegal immigration and drug and human smuggling um, on a daily basis. Uh, and that has really divided communities here. Um, and, you know, we've got the legacy of people like Barry Goldwater, who was the presidential candidate uh, in the 60s. And he really set a foundation of conservatism, not just here in Arizona, but also nationally. You mentioned being a border state and immigration being an important issue. Has Arizona traditionally taken quite a hard line on immigration? And is Donald Trump's position actually quite attractive to a lot of people here? Yeah, definitely. I would call Arizona basically an incubator for many of Trump's uh, policies that he's been touting this election and for a conservative approach to immigration um, uh, just nationally. Uh, but also, interestingly, compromises have come out of Arizona. So, for example, in 2010, uh, a bill called SB 1070, which was 
probably the strictest um, immigration enforcement state law in the country. And that was, uh, you know, basically cracking down and, and on um, people who were su- suspected of being here illegally. I was dubbed the show me your papers law. And that brought out huge protests and um, ultimately much of it was struck down by the Supreme Court. But on the other hand, you've seen Senators McCain and Flake be some of the um, leaders on immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform in Congress saying, look, we want border security, we want immigration enforcement, but we realize that to reform, uh, we also have to uh, compromise on things such as um, a path to citizenship for folks who are here illegally now. If Arizona could go either way between Trump and Clinton, how safe is John McCain in his Senate seat? You know, we've seen polls in recent weeks showing him in a pretty comfortable lead. And my view on this is that he's such a household name. He's been such um, a dogged uh, uh, champion of Arizona in the Senate. Um, And his uh, Democratic opponent, Ann Kirkpatrick, has not provided um, a clear enough alternative to him that he will win in November. Um, however, the Trump, what some people are calling an albatross, certainly does hang around his neck. I mean, Trump uh, insulted POWs and, and, you know, implied that McCain um, was not a hero. Uh, and even with that, McCain had supported Trump all the way up until these last comments uh, by Trump about groping women. So um, I think that you will see here uh, moderates as well as uh, similar to what you're seeing in Utah, uh, the significant population of Mormon voters uh, drifting away from Trump and perhaps taking a second look at McCain uh, since he has been supporting. But ultimately, I think that people will say that the senior senator from Arizona deserves another term. Finally, another thing Arizona will be voting on next month is this proposition to legalize marijuana for recreational use. How do you see that going? That one's a, a tricky one. Uh, the Arizona Republic just a few weeks ago uh, did commission a poll that about 50% of respondents to the poll supported recreational uh, marijuana legalization. About 40% opposed it and 10% were undecided. I uh, believe that by the time our next poll comes out this week, we'll have seen that undecided group shrink and um, the opposition grow and it become more of this toss-up. Um, and it just does seem inevitable that legalization is going to continue its march through the states. Um, but I, I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to be this year in Arizona. first focus groups this week were with voters from a Hispanic background. Several of them said this was the most unpleasant election campaign they could remember. It's ugly, ugly. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems worse than other years. There's so much garbage coming out about it. <clears throat> every year, every cycle, it, it seems like it's worse and worse, in my opinion. More mudslinging, more yes. negative type ads. And so I expected this cycle to be the worst yet. 
And it has exceeded my expectations. Yes. We have a reality TV star who's a misogynist. I mean, we go down the whole list to somebody who is probably racist and a liar. And you know, I mean, on the other side, can't be trusted. Neither one of them can be trusted. So why should we put them as the most powerful person on earth? The, the divisiveness, I think, is at a higher level than ever. Then again, this is only my third election, so I don't have much of a large uh, a base to come off of. But from the three I've been involved in, I feel like people are, I think there's where they've asked people, how do you feel about uh, Republicans? And they'll ask them, how do you feel about Democrats? And they'll say that they scare me. And I don't know if maybe back in 1985, you would say that the other party scares you. Much of this was down to Donald Trump, and in particular, the way he'd raised the question of immigration. Um, even though I'm registered Republican, there's no way that I can bring myself up to voting for Trump. So it's a stance. I'm going for Gary Johnson. I've been raised in Arizona. I've been here 54 years. I, I don't know a lick of Spanish. Um, and it, it, it just bothers me because his first attack was that we're going to get rid of all the criminals and going to build this great big huge wall. Yeah, everybody wants to keep the drugs out, the cartel, the people that are coming here illegally. We want them to be here where they're supposed to be, but just the way he first came out and started talking about it was just like, it wasn't a good feeling for me. And I honestly think that he's brought up a lot of really bad American feelings towards immigrants, and that's the part that really bothers me. I am a very conservative person. But I don't think he is what we would consider conservative. For several of these voters, Trump's rhetoric affected not just how they thought about him, but about the Republican Party more widely. I realize Clinton's not a saint, but I remember seeing this type of like behavior, and it just—it's a complete turnoff. And I think in the future, it's going to ruin the Republican Party, and they're not going to come back. I don't see him like as representative of the Republican Party per se because he's not. He's so different. But the stuff that he says and how it got voted, the Republican Party kind of fired on themselves, like for the fact that he, climate change denial, they want to build a wall, I'm lower taxes. Um, just the stuff that he says, that he said during the primaries, they've been saying that for a long time. And so they kind of like, this is what the Republican Party created. They have this big um, aura that they dis they, they distance themselves from immigrants. and. They don't like immigrants from Mexico or they don't like immigrants from pretty much anywhere from like uh, Syria or stuff like that. You have to be an inclusive party, especially nowadays. You have to welcome everybody if you want to win a democratic election. These groups also have some pretty mixed views on Hillary Clinton. I think she's done more good than she's done bad. Um, I think she's served the people um, of America more than anybody of us, any one of us here, were willing to do to sacrifice our life to commit to certain things, but then she's done bad things. You know, she's a human being. She's not perfect. I want there to be a female candidate that you can you know, stand behind, but this is not the woman for me. There's an arrogance about her. Uh, even when she did an interview about the Clinton Foundation, she still didn't apologize. She blamed other people. And there's, as arrogant as Donald Trump is, he's like the drunk guy that you're like, oh, whatever, but she's just got this arrogance, like she's the queen, she can do no wrong. 
I will never vote for her because I would rather vote for an idiot like Trump than vote for Clinton. I spent I spent two enlistments in the Marine Corps. If I sent one email that was classified on an unclassified server, I would be court-martialed and kicked out. But these voters were by no means universally hostile to Donald Trump. Some of them thought his attitude to things, including immigration, was exactly what America needed. I'm a registered Democrat, and I think that the, actually this is what leads me to want to vote for Trump, is the immigration, because the Democrats haven't done enough about it. They've made it very simplistic, and I've worked with victims, illegal immigrants that were victims, they're victimized by the same people that are coming across, smuggling, sexual assaults. There's a lot of atrocities being committed that the Democrats don't even pay attention to. They're just like, oh, no, they're all hard workers. And it's true, a lot of them are, but there are some that aren't, and no one's addressing that. And at least Trump's talking about it. With Trump, as crazy as it is, you know what he's saying. You know what he's saying. You know what he thinks, because he's telling you, as crazy as it is. Now, you know, I got to believe that you put some uh, good people around him that they're going to say, no, you really can't say it like that. You do it this way. Don't think it down a bit. But you do know where he stands, more so than her. I'm first-generation American. My parents were immigrants, and they went through a process. And it's not fair for people in other countries from Guatemala to have to wait longer because they don't happen to share a border with the United States. You would get more votes if you would just stick to what he's going to do instead of lying Hillary, yeah. everything's rigged, the media doesn't like me. That's all I hear in all his speeches. It's the same thing over and over again. I mean, gone so far to the left uh, just we're so liberal everyone is quick to be offended by anything that i think and i I find trump to be offensive but i kind of think we're at a point where we need a slap in the face so you got to toughen up and let's get back to being americans and being normal people not being offended because the wind blew For the past 40 years, Petra Falcon has worked to increase the rights of immigrants in Arizona. This year, her organization, Promise Arizona, has registered about 50,000 new Latino voters and counting. I spoke with her about the 2016 presidential election and the issues that matter to Latino voters. How many Latinos has your organization helped to register to vote? And do you think the work you are doing could be the deciding factor this year when it looks too close to call in Arizona? Well, we, uh, Promise Arizona started uh, to do voter registration in, in 2010, the same time that SB 1070 hit uh, the community, and that really motivated not only our our organization to be founded, because Promise Arizona was founded in, in the summer of 2010 in, in the middle of SB 1070, and voter registration became one of the tactics for us to respond to the hateful legislation. SB 1070 is Senate Bill 1070, and what that law did, it gave license to law enforcement officers to, quite frankly, profile people of color. If they looked like they were an immigrant, they would be subjected to being stopped, whether they were in the car, whether you know they were crossing the street, whether they were in a park. Uh, but if they looked like they might be immigrants, they could be stopped by a law enforcement officer. And if they were undocumented or couldn't prove that they belonged here or had status, uh, they were they were most likely going to be deported. And a lot of the people involved in our organization fell in, in, into that. 
at that time, there was closely over 400,000 eligible Latinos who were not registered to vote in, in the state of Arizona. Since 2010, Promise Arizona has, has registered close to 50,000, and maybe a little bit more than that. In 2004, President George W. Bush won 44% of Latino voters, but Donald Trump's approval ratings with Latinos are around 14%. What do you think explains the difference? Is it just Trump's rhetoric on immigration, or is there more to it than that? Well, it's, it's the immigration issue. It's it's the language that he uses to, to describe immigrants or Latinos, uh, accusing them of, of being criminals, of of crossing the border and, and coming over here just to you know, sell their drugs or rape women and uh, take jobs away uh, from from the citizenry. Uh, it, 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 it's the same language, I say the same talking points that uh, the Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the Russell Pierce's uh, in Arizona used to divide our state. And it's the same language that is dividing our country now. Uh, this language of hate, this language of racism, this language of profiling. And and I and I, that, I think that's the number one issue. Do you think that Latino voters draw a distinction between Donald Trump and other Republicans? Or do you think their view of him will help determine how they see other Republican candidates in this election and in the future? Well, that's a good question. I always say that voters, and in this case, Latino voters, need to feel like they have a relationship with a political party. And and I do think, um, quite frankly, both parties have not done all that of a great of a job. And that's why, unfortunately, they are registering more independent across the board. But I, but um, for new voters, uh, they are they are they are asking for more education on candidates, and they're asking for more education on platforms and what uh, the the candidates rep represent uh, and what issues they are willing to fight for. And again, among Latinos, I think the the two issues that uh, that they are paying attention to and how they how they relate to the candidates is around immigration and and education. And, and I think that is what, what uh, is driving the motivation for Latino voters and how the candidates stand on those issues. And, and jobs. Immigrants care about their families. That's why they cross the border and sacrifice separating themselves from families in another, their, their, their country of origin. Um, and they, their primary interest uh, was education for their children. Uh, but to do that and you know, to live the American dream, they need to have good paying jobs. They need to have jobs that, that will not only help them support their families, but also probably send money back home to a mom or a dad, you know, to, to elderly parents to, um, because they're not back home. Uh, so, so jobs is, is critical. John Sopel has covered four US presidential elections for the BBC and is now its North America editor. Lord Ashcroft met up with him in Washington and began by asking him about the differences between covering British and American politics. I think the most obvious thing is size. When you cover British politics, if you know a few members of the cabinet, a few members of the shadow cabinet, a few senior civil servants, a couple of trade union leaders, um, you've broadly got the waterfront covered. 
coming to Washington and just seeing the scale of the operation across 50 states, where each state has its own intricate and complicated politics, let alone the State Department, let alone the Pentagon, let alone the White House, let alone uh, the House of Congress, it is so much bigger and therefore is so much more complex. And, uh, you know, before I came here, I couldn't understand why elections went on as long as they did. Now that I'm here, I do understand why I have been covering a presidential election for the past 16 months. And what's it like covering American politics as a foreign correspondent? I mean, do you find people are eager to talk to you or do they think of you as part of the no votes media? Yeah, well, that's exactly the phrase. NVTV. I am no votes television. Um, what I think is, here's my more nuanced answer to that. I think the BBC is the biggest non-American player here. So we've managed to get an interview with Obama. We've traveled on Air Force One we get good access relative to other foreigners. However, compared to the American networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, the cable channels, Fox, MSNBC, or CNN, we are way below down in the pecking order. We are the last people that you'd think of. But in terms of foreign media, probably the BBC name, the B BBC brand still has some clout. And so we're given uh, house room. But, you know, if I ring up a senator and say, Senator X, would you mind coming by our office and doing an interview with us this afternoon? The answer is invariably going to be no. If, however, we were to turn up outside his office with a camera and we were prepared to wait for 45 minutes, he might well give us a couple of minutes. So, I, you know, the, the American, we don't have anything like the pull of the American networks. Well, I think for you, John, this is the fourth presidential election you've covered for the BBC. How does this one differ from the previous three? because there are no rules in this one. It feels as though, I mean, I, you know, you've been covering politics a long time and studying it. I've done politics for a long time. I, I used to know where Magnetic North was on my compass. And on this campaign, you know, talk about the last two weeks where we've had Donald Trump's uh, tax return, some of that revealed in the New York Times, three pages of that, the tape of him seeming to boast about sexually abusing a woman, then the, all the women coming forward. In normal conventional political elections, say in the UK, if someone running to be prime minister, if the leader of a party went through that, they would be dead. They'd be toast. They would, that would be the end of their bid to become the prime minister of that country. Donald Trump, he's been hit a tiny bit, but not that much. What's been remarkable is the extent to which his polling numbers have remained stable. And so I think that this is an election that seems to be without any conventional rules. And that's why I think that any people who's, anyone who says, you know what, this election is over, we've got to write Donald Trump off, it's President Hillary Clinton. I think they're wrong. I think we don't know. And I think we don't know what's going on in the minds of the electorate. There is such profound anger, disillusionment, sense of uh, let down with conventional politics, that they are prepared to do something that would be by American standards, without precedent. Vote for someone without experience. Well, you obviously deal with people from both the Trump and Clinton teams and you attend their events and so on. Is there a different atmosphere in the two campaigns? How do you explain that both to your colleagues at the BBC and to an audience, the difference in atmosphere? Well, I mean, it's the difference between the unorthodox and the orthodox. So in the Hillary Clinton campaign, you have a very orthodox press operation which is very tightly controlled 
very disciplined, very focused on message. Uh, dealing with them can be a bit of a nightmare, to be honest, because you know they. You will stand here. You will wait for this. You will not do that. You are, you know, you are, you are kind of treated like a little school child on a school trip of what you can and can't do when you're in their vicinity. With the Trump campaign, it is much more anarchic. I think, but I think things are changing. I think that for the past, until la until a month ago, Donald Trump had had a very, very easy ride with the media, I would argue, and would say that actually the media created Donald Trump in the sense that they covered anything that he was doing to the exclusion of everybody else. So he got massive free airtime. Um, I think in the past month, the Donald Trump mood has got a lot uglier and actually covering Donald Trump now at the moment is quite unpleasant. I think if you're going to any of his rallies, he turns on the press and it's a very, very hostile atmosphere. So it's the, you know, initially Donald Trump was much easier to cover because it was slightly anarchic and chaotic and you could do what you want. Uh, Hillary Clinton, it has never been like that. It's always been very controlled, very tightly focused. And uh, and with all the problems that went with that, I mean, you know, the classic, if I'm just to expand on it for a second, was when Hillary had that collapse on the day of the 9-11 commemorations in New York. And the way her communications team communicated was woeful. They didn't give us honest, straight answers to straight questions. And unwittingly, she sows seeds of mistrust by behaving like that towards the media, where all you want is a straight answer so you can get on with your day and do your reports. But the answers kept on changing. And I think that that's, I think that the kind of definition maybe of the Hillary Clinton campaign has been, it's a bit been, it's been too clever by half. It's tried to be over sophisticated when being straightforward would have served her much better. Uh, I think one of the striking features of this election is how many people simply can't bear Hillary Clinton. And do you think people outside the US realize this? No. I think that that's a really good point. And I, I go back, when I've been back to London, I've spoken to our editors and our bosses who sort of look at the kind of, you know, the comparative CVs, if you like, of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and think, well, surely Hillary Clinton's going to be elected president because she's been Secretary of State, because she's been a senator, because she's been First Lady. And I said, well, what you're not tapping into there is some of the profound antipathy that not only there's, a, I mean, I think there are degrees of misogyny that uh, are, are part and parcel of the dislike of Hillary Clinton. I think the Clinton name is not a great political brand. I think there's a feeling that she's not straightforward. I think there's a feeling that, that you know, I suppose that kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions that, you know, you've got a population of 320 to 340 million people. How is it you end up with a choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? I mean, more broadly, do you think people outside the United States sometimes misunderstand American politics and, by extension, Americans themselves? And if so, why do you think that is? I think there's absolutely a misunderstanding. I, I, for a start, I think that British people in particular think that America is just the same, only bigger. And actually, America is a different country with different values, with different kind of way of operating and being. And I think the British completely fail to get how different America is from Great Britain. You look at guns, you look at the attitudes towards government, you look at any number of different issues. America is profoundly different country. Well, finally, without wanting to foul up too many of your relationships in Washington, are there any American politicians that you've particularly enjoyed dealing with over the years, or any who are more difficult? 
Oh, there are plenty who are more difficult, and uh, and I'm not going to name them because I think that I might have to deal with them again in the future. I've got to say that actually dealing with the Obama White House has been a pleasure in the sense that, not because they've always said yes, they've often said no, but it's been straightforward. They're very direct. And that's what I like about dealing with the Obama White House, that sometimes you ask, you know, can I get a question at this news conference? No, that's not going to happen because we've got the Americans who want to ask those questions. Can we have an interview? And when they said we could have an interview with the president, it was very straightforward dealing with him. Um, So I have found myself dealing with the Obama White House uh, a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, John. And I look forward to seeing you in the Pink Pussycat Club tonight. (laughs) See you then. Our next focus group in Phoenix was with Trump supporters, none of whom were much bothered about the week's allegations about his behavior towards women. Look what we've had before. I mean, yeah, I I don't condone it, but I'm like him. I'm looking at (coughs) our country and what our country needs and the issues. Look at it this way. What Bill did, everyone says is bad and hideous. What um, Trump did is bad and hideous. Did it affect Bill's way of running the government? Whether you like like it or not, did it affect how he ran the government. Some people love the way he ran it. Is that going to affect the way Trump runs the government? Who knows? Think about the Kennedys and their yes. escapades. Yes. It was fine yeah. for everyone because it was the Kennedys. Right. It swept it under the rug. It was mm-hmm. okay. Kennedy after Kennedy after mm-hmm. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we have Trump and it's like, oh my gosh, hide the mm-hmm. children, please. <laughs> We asked what they made of Trump's statement that he would keep us in suspense as to whether he would accept the result of the election, whoever won. The last thing that he said was that he, he wouldn't tell us if he would um, support the winning candidate or not. Well, I mean, all of these lies that they've come out, you know, that they've caught the Clinton administration in. How could you say, yeah, I'll support that? The, the situation with Al Gore, he challenged and he lost the challenge. So yeah. if either one were to challenge and then lose the challenge, then they should right. accept. Yeah. And that question didn't really pertain to that. It just, would you accept the results? Which results? The results on the day of the event or the results two or three months later? I think this is really personal at this point. I don't think it's business anymore. I mean, and they both have such big egos. So, like, when you're talking about accepting results, I don't think Donald Trump will probably accept the results because he's got such a big ego and it's personal with Hillary. Whether they thought the election was being rigged or not, most of them certainly thought the media had a lot to answer for. Swimming an uphill river. I mean, yeah. everywhere you turn, everyone's against him, the media's against him, they're all for Hillary. So when I hear that this election's over, there's only... I can't believe there's any women in this room. You'd make it think I was the only educated woman that's even voting for the guy because they always tell you, you know, there's nobody other. If you, if you heard in the media, no women yeah. are going to vote for Trump. Everyone hates or him. Or right. I mean, it's just, woman. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. You, yeah. So, like, hearing this representation, you just don't see it. I mean, I know I try to stay away from the news, but when you watch the news, none of this is represented. Yeah. We also asked what these voters thought was at stake at this election is going further and further away from Judeo-Christian principles that have mm-hmm. made it what it was. And God we trust is, right. is a lot in a lot of ways gone. And so um and so 
It's the social justice and the political correctness mm-hmm. that dominate the liberal media and dominate the liberal party have won. I think I'm outnumbered because yeah, that's just, uh, that's I go to work every day, and, and anybody that goes and has the principles. But when the when you're promised free goodies and we're going to tax those other people, and like they're going to get that money, all it is is just an expansion of government when they want all these new taxes. But people actually buy into that thing. But somebody's got to pay for it. And socialism is good until you run out of out of other people. That's what I'm praying for. Yeah, it's a silent majority. Everyone that has remained quiet, that doesn't want anyone to know who they're voting for, they're going to show up. Finally, we spoke to a group of undecided voters who were unimpressed by both candidates. Given the number of issues at stake in the country, they felt the current campaign was simply not living up to the times. We have a lot of very polarizing issues in our country right now. And I think that, and it just so happens that they seem to coincide with the election. So for me personally, I'm looking for someone to help balance that and to bring some level of harmony to issues like immigration, to police brutality, to uh, equality in gay marriage. I mean, there's just, we've kind of reached a boiling point on several things and need someone to take a lead moving forward. And it doesn't have to be race or people say, well, it's rich and poor people, white and black, ethnic people, non-ethnic people, uh, but really it's a way of thinking. I think that's the difference. There's a, it, it doesn't matter your race or gender to me. It's people that believe that there's potential and possibility for anything to happen and people that see the problem in other individuals and not themselves. For me, it's those two things. And it doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in, I have friends of all ethnicities, and some of them think this way, and some of them think this way. And the ones that think this way think there's a lot of future in the country, and both candidates are jackasses. And the people that think this way still think that both candidates are jackasses, but they don't see a lot of potential in the country, no matter who wins. One thing I can't say about Trump is we know what we're getting if he gets in, in office. He reminds me of a kid. He wants it his way and his way only, and when he can't have it his way, he throws a temper tantrum. That's why he's been through so many managers. I think she has the experience, but I don't think people think she did her job well. It's like if you get a job for a long time and people don't think you did it well, why are they going to give you the promotion, you know, just because you have the experience? He's definitely not professional. I think it's going to be really bad when it's time to deal with people in other countries. You know, because they know that they can just push his button. Let me push his button four minutes and he's going to explode and it's all going to be over. Well, listening to those Trump supporters after the third debate in which the big story was Trump's refusal to say that he would accept the result, whatever happened, it was pretty clear that they didn't think there was a risk of the election being rigged directly, most of them. Um, but they weren't at all sure that Trump would actually accept the result when it came to it. And they didn't blame him for that. They pointed out that Al Gore had waited a month into December to actually concede the election. So they felt that if Trump did see irregularities, he deserved to fight it out and have his chance to do that in the American legal system. And even though they didn't think the election was going to be rigged in a, in a direct sense, they thought the media was certainly playing a part which was not helping Trump in any way. Well, that was interesting to me just because in mainstream media, the polls are being reported as the polls have turned out and 
been scientifically quantified. And yet a lot of Trump supporters see this as a sustained effort by the media to discredit his candidacy and to suppress turnout by saying Trump is down, so discouraging his voters to come out and cast their ballots for him. And part of that is the stories about the women coming forward with allegations about groping and other things. It was pretty clear, though, that they thought those stories were probably not untrue. Their point was that it didn't matter, it wouldn't affect his ability to do the job. And they thought there was also a bit of a double standard because Trump is held up to demonization about these things, whereas Clinton and Kennedy were accused of very similar things, and yet they thought got a bit of a pass on that. And it's perhaps one thing that Trump has done brilliantly this entire election is that he has managed to this sense of victimization he has by the press he's managed to transfer it to his supporters and really create a sense of he's under attack their movement is under attack their values are under attack and it wasn't clear whether they thought they were part of a silent majority or whether they were outnumbered but that was definitely a theme and um, they thought they often they thought you were no longer really free to say what you thought without being accused of racism and other dreadful things. They thought um, their constitutional rights are being eroded. Um, they think their, their, their values are under attack and not represented in the media at all. What I did find incredibly surprising was that these diehard supporters weren't necessarily transferring their support to a Trump television network. And in fact, a lot of the supporters we spoke to, they seemed to think that it was a media plot saying that Trump was looking into forming this network immediately after the election to discredit his candidacy now. So even that was perceived as anti-Trump, reporting on the potential of this Trump television network. When it came to our undecided voters who didn't think much of either candidate, they were a pretty melancholy bunch, I thought. They, were, they thought there were great issues at stake in the country that needed solving and had got worse over the last eight years, many of them. But the current campaign and the candidates were simply not living up to what needed to be done. But they also blame the media just as much as the hardcore Trump supporters. So I think that's a point of real unification. We just have time to go through our mailbag, as people used to say. Shelley Twitchin, who describes herself as a Kentucky girl in London, tweets, in your Philly episode, one woman said Hillary is policy smart, but she can't warm to her. Question, isn't policy enough? To which the answer, Elise, is? I don't think it is enough for everyone because this race has just been so personality driven. And at the end of the day, these contests are personality contests on some level. So you really do need to be able to trust the person that you're going to put in your nation's highest office. Shane Holmes tweets, great podcast and insight. Thank you, Shane. And ask Lord Ashcroft if anyone's ever told that he sounds like David Frost. And Rob Moore says, we should ask our focus groups, when Trump ends the world, do you think God will forgive you for voting for him? Maybe next week. Thanks also to Matt Southcombe, also from London, who says he likes the theme tune. We like it too, Matt. And that's it for Ashcroft in America this week. Keep tweeting us with your comments, questions, and use the hashtag Ashcroft in America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and catch up with previous episodes, including Lord Ashcroft's special interview with Mitt Romney. All our research is published at lordashcroftpolls.com, and you can keep up to date with the Ashcroft in America tour on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, we're heading back east for more sunshine. We'll see you next week in Florida. Thank you.